It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Wherever you go in America, in all 50 states, not to mention about 120 other countries around the world, the golden arches of McDonald's hold out a promise. It's a promise of affordable indulgence, production line predictability, an optimistic empire offering opportunity to the thousands of entrepreneurs who run its franchises, and instant gratification to the hundreds of millions of people who eat in them every year. But in the economic weirdness of post-pandemic America, even McDonald's is having to adjust. Last year, it raised wages by 10% and looked to hire 10,000 new staff. Now it's cutting expensive and fiddly items like salads and parfaits from its menu as it struggles to hire kitchen staff and protect profits from rising prices. And as inflation persists, signs offering dollar drinks are starting to disappear. The emblem of American abundance is tightening its belt. I'm John Prudeau and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America heading for recession? And if so, can Joe Biden survive it? Predictions of imminent downturn are everywhere. The economy shrank slightly in the first quarter, and American stocks had their worst first half in more than 50 years. President Biden is facing blame from both the right and the left. The disagreement now is not over whether the Federal Reserve should fight inflation, but how painful the consequences of it doing so will be. What can the administration do to protect both the economy and its own electoral future? With me to discuss the state of the economy and the likely impact of what's coming on American politics are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloon. Charlotte, of course, is our New York bureau chief, and Idris is the Washington bureau chief, so this podcast really ought to be renamed Two Chiefs. <laughs> Charlotte, what's happening your end? Well, Americans, I think, generally are watching with amusement as Boris Johnson has his downfall or clownfall, as our current cover states. And I think the schadenfreude in seeing a political leader in another country look as ridiculous as our political leaders here often are is deeply satisfying. Britain's close alliance with America extends to British politicians, making you guys feel better about the state of your own government. Idris, how are you doing? What's up in Washington? Uh, I'm doing well. I've just come off a reporting trip to San Francisco, which I had not visited since before the pandemic. It's, It's such a weird city because sometimes it will feel like the greatest city on earth and sometimes it will just look like a dystopian nightmare. You know, you're in a park and it's it's gorgeous and then you see like abject homelessness in front of a billion dollar company 
and people in AirPods and scooters whizzing by. And, and you wonder if Blade Runner is reality. It is a place of extreme contrast, isn't it? All cities are studies in extreme contrasts in America, but I think San Francisco may be the winner there. Yeah, and sticking with the theme of extreme contrast, we're going to be talking about the U.S. economy this week, which has gone in incredibly short order from recession to boom to maybe back to recession again, inflation taking off, of course. The American economy today presents a pretty complicated and somewhat contradictory picture. One of the people charged with decoding it, both for the president and for the people, is Dr. Cecilia Rouse. She's chair of Joe Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, and she's a professor at Princeton. She's also worked for Presidents Clinton and Obama. Our US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, has been talking to her about the overall health of the economy, and also what surprised her about this quite weird post-pandemic economic paradigm. I'm a labor economist, so the one part that I would say I did not anticipate is the the sense of coming out of a recession and having their labor market being so hot. And so we did not experience the scarring you might typically expect. We've seen a very rapid decline in long-term unemployment, you know, a record recovery in the labor market uh, by many measures. We overachieved there, but we came in with a lot of strength. Yes, we saw in the first quarter that GDP growth overall was negative, but largely that was due to the fact that exports were very strong, uh, which reflects both our us, but it also reflects our trading partners. And business investment, which actually originally they were categorized as imports and now it's become inventories. This is all my way of saying that if we actually look at consumption and other components of GDP, it was actually relatively strong. And those components are often better predictors of future growth. This is not my way of saying that we're going to have robust growth for the rest of the year. We understand that the Federal Reserve is trying to cool the economy. We understand that the war of Russia against Ukraine is generating its own challenges. But there are bones in this economy in the U.S. that are, are relatively strong right now. So, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a funny economy and funny in the sense that it is rather mixed. But nonetheless, we're, we're seeing some signs um, of slowing, which is welcome news from the perspective of the Federal Reserve and inflation. As you've noted, the Fed is doing a lot right now um, to tighten monetary policy. Outside of the central bank, what can the rest of the government do? So President Biden is focused on inflation. He understands the challenge it provides for families, especially those who have less income. He understands that when food and gas and energy, those costs are rising, that that, that that's a problem. So one, he is doing what he can to increase oil production to help with the, the prices especially regarding gas. The price of gasoline is set on a global market, but he, that, this is why he's done these, these historic releases from our Strategic Petroleum Reserve in coordination with our allies, again, to keep oil flowing onto the market. We recognize that part of the gas price challenge is refining capacity. Uh, Secretary Granholm, our Secretary of Energy, met with oil companies, met with refiners to ask what can we do to help increase production in the short term. We recognize we have to make a, a, a transition to clean energy, but in the immediate term, we are still reliant on fossil fuels. He is also focused on his economic policymaking around increasing economic capacity. That doesn't address inflation today, but it is designed to help increase the capacity of our economy so that we are better able to absorb these kinds of challenges going forward. So that is by lowering costs for families, 
um, low, that's in terms of childcare, prescription costs, that is lowering our federal deficit. So he's proposed raising increasing taxes for the very wealthiest uh, individuals and, and corporations because by lowering the deficit, that actually does help in the immediate term, but it also generates uh, the resources, frees up resources to be invested in our economy to ensure that we have you know, robust growth going forward that is more evenly shared. One quick question about a kind of a moving piece of the puzzle right now, which obviously is the, the big drop in oil prices this week below $100 a barrel. C- can I ask you at the CEA, when you, when you see that kind of price movement, are you happy because you know that will translate into lower prices or are you worried because it reflects pessimism about, about the state of the economy? So um, at the Council of Economic Advisors, we believe in, in markets. And again, oil and gas are traded on a global market. And so what we really understand is that these data fluctuate. Fundamentally, we do welcome a decrease in the price of oil and gas because we understand how energy is so important to consumers and it's so important to so many other products. So not only does that reflect the headline inflation numbers, but that starts to bleed into the core inflation numbers that, are, that take out food and energy. Again, we certainly do not wish a recession on the U.S. or any other country, but we also understand that we need to see some cooling in our economies in order to, to address inflation. Okay. The fact of the matter is, you know, what the extent of tightening being done by the Federal Reserve is clearly going to lead to a, an economic slowdown. The question is, is how, how sharp will it be? Um, the Fed itself has talked about, you know, a rising risk of recession. What's your perspective? How, how big of a risk is it? And roughly kind of what time frame are you looking at? Well, here is what I know. We come at it with some resilience because of the strength of our growth and recovery last year. Um, We understand the Fed has got a very challenging task ahead. Um, And again, the war in Ukraine is not helping in the sense that we see for really almost an unprecedented gap between headline inflation and core inflation, which is growing because the difference is food and energy inflation. And a lot of that, some people have estimated about half of that, you know, those are estimates, uh, may be attributable to the war. I am confident that the Federal Reserve will bring inflation under control because they are committed to doing so. I think it's very possible, given we still have some slack in terms of our labor force participation, bringing more people back into the labor market. I think we're seeing our, some of our supply chains heal. We're seeing some softening of demand, which is, quite frankly, what the Fed is trying to engineer. So I think it's possible, you know, and I'm hopeful, that the Fed will engineer this soft landing, so not bring the economy into recession. But I'm not going to pretend that it's not a difficult challenge that they have ahead. Charlotte, listening to Cecilia Rouse there, I was struck by how hard her job is in terms of communication. I mean, it's almost like being a Fed chair running the CEA. I mean, you've got to sound optimistic about the economy, but you can't sound too optimistic given where the data are. What did you make of the most recent jobs numbers, which are really strong? I mean, on the one hand, that's great news, right? Good unemployment data is good news. On the other hand, it's going to feed this narrative about inflation. Yes, I think you put your finger on it. It's hard to make sense of how all these numbers fit together. The jobs report was much better than most economists expected. It was 372,000 jobs that were added in June. That's less than the half a million jobs that were added coming out of COVID. But it is still really, really robust growth in the jobs market. 
And I think you see this reflected in the divergence among economists for when they're saying a recession might come or how likely it is. J.P. Morgan thinks there'll be a 35% likelihood of recession in the next 12 months. Bank of America says 40% by the end of 2023. Wells Fargo thinks that a recession is more likely than not by the end of next year. So we're not talking about a recession that comes immediately, but there is expectation that it might be around the corner. That's in part because you've had some layoffs in the news, Tesla and Nike. The S&P 500 fell more than 20% in the first half of the year. Crypto, it turns out, is not a great hedge against the market. It's plunged as well. And then even as you have growth in the number of jobs, wage growth is not keeping pace with inflation. And so I think there are two big questions that come out of that. And one is, what's the real risk of tipping into recession? And then the second is, what do consumers think is the real risk of continued rising inflation and a recession? And then how do those expectations feed into the pace and magnitude of a recession itself? Expectations matter. If people think that inflation is going to rise, it does. That's because businesses might raise prices or, or workers want raises. And then the Fed is in this position of needing to respond more aggressively to tamp down inflation. And they might raise rates more quickly, and that might then put the brakes on the broader economy. And that's what's interesting to me. and also makes the job of someone like Cecilia Rouse or the Fed much harder. Idris, first, I'd like to ask your state of pessimism or optimism about the US economy in the next year. You know, whether you're more on the JP Morgan, there's only a 35% chance side of things. But then I also would like to know, how bad is that for Joe Biden and for the Democratic Party? Uh, I'm going to try to do an artful dodge on your first question, because even if you're a professional macroeconomist, you're wrong more often than not. So uh, moonlighting uh, macroeconomists is, is not going to do much better. Um, you know, I'm just going to defer to the the chorus of experts that we have. You know, Cecilia Rouse, whose job it is to convey the rosiest view of the economy from the administration's perspective, even she said it's going to be tough to engineer a soft landing. I do feel much more certain that inflation and recessions are are quite bad for political outcomes. So, you know, there, there are a couple of ways that political scientists try to predict election outcomes. You know, you can do big fancy models like we're currently working on, but uh, actually a very simple way of, of doing this has been to just look at two or three variables. One of them, the president's approval rating. The second one, voters' perceptions of the economy. And those two put together are really good at, at predicting um, whether or not the party in power is going to lose seats right now. President Biden's approval rating is below Donald Trump's at this point of his presidency, which would make him by some measures the least popular president at this point in his presidency in the modern polling era. Even a majority of Democrats say that they have a negative prognosis for the economy. And we also know from political science that uh, voters' perceptions of the economy tend to get baked in at around this point. So it's quite likely that, that voters will have already set their perceptions on the state of the economy and will vote accordingly. And all of those things point negatively for the Democrats. It does seem in retrospect that the Congress and the president made the wrong call in going for such a big fiscal stimulus last year. And there's some debate about the degree to which the inflation problem in America is therefore the fault of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Where do you come down on that one? I think that clearly the stimulus was 
one factor, but it also clearly was not the only one. You have a war that had a tremendous impact, upward impact on energy prices as well as food prices. Then you also have uh, people blaming the Fed by keeping interest rates low for so long. So I do think that it's fair to say that the injection of enormous amounts of cash, the huge emergency relief passed both by the Trump administration, but then also from the American Rescue Plan, which is $1.9 trillion in March of 2021, that that did have an impact, but it's not the only driver. A lot of advanced economies that are not led by Joe Biden are experiencing extremely high inflation, including the UK, which has a headline inflation number of 9%. You know, I, I, I think that they did make a mistake in in going so big so early, both because it probably accelerated inflation to some degree, but also because I think it shot their fox legislatively. But, you know, these strains of thinking are, are tough to kill. You know, I noted that uh, Governor Newsom in California is putting in place a policy to give 23 million people in the state inflation relief checks, um, which is a bit like pouring gas on a on an open flame. Yeah, the only inflation relief check that I think would work would be if you were extracting money from people's bank accounts, right, rather than depositing it. Anyway, in a moment, we'll go back to the 70s to look at the risks of being seen to get it wrong on inflation. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Idris, Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed from the past week's coverage? Well, this week was exciting because it was James Bennett's first Lexington column. And I think it was a fantastic one about Liz Cheney that uh, exhibited his really extensive knowledge of Westerns, which, you know, I, I found that I'm sorely lacking in and need to need to school myself up on. I love Tom Wainwright's piece on TikTok, which is a social media platform, which I find confusing and terrifying and all the things. And so I was glad that he helped me make sense of it. Yes, and actually Tom was talking to our friends on our Money Talks podcast this week all about the TikTok time bomb and whether its popularity could be its downfall. Money Talks is also the place to go for more deep dives on the changes going on in the global economy. That's Money Talks from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1976. The sleeper hit of the season is Rocky. But it wasn't the only knockout contest that November. Another underdog, unknown and untested on such a great stage, was limbering up for the fight of his life. It's a pretty tough year to be a Democratic voter in America. If you're a Republican, the choice is easy. You either want Mr. Ford to stay in the White House or you want Mr. Reagan to push him out. But if you're a Democrat, you've got 11 candidates to choose from so far. This underdog had so little national profile at the beginning of the race that the leading newspaper in his state ran the headline... Jimmy who is running for what? Jimmy Carter, surprisingly top of the class after his win in a somewhat obscure race in Iowa against the others. Ex-governor of Georgia, lots of charm. He'll need more than that to stay ahead For Carter, the 1976 presidential election was not about inflation. True, it had been high, briefly in double figures, fueled by the huge social and wartime spending of the previous decade and the oil crisis of 73. But it had eased as the recession ended to less than half its peak. No, this election was about something else, being as different as possible from the disgraced Richard Nixon. I see an America that has turned away from scandals and corruption. And it was about prosperity after the years of gas lines and dole queues. I believe that anybody that's able to work 
ought to work and ought to have a chance to work. Despite warnings from his Fed chairman to go slow, Carter kicked off his presidency with a bumper stimulus package he promised would create a million new jobs. For a moment, it looked like it might be working. But as growth returned, prices started to creep up faster too. I want to have a frank talk with you tonight about our most serious domestic problem. That problem is inflation. True, Carter started to talk tougher. He hired not one but two inflation czars who scolded businesses to control prices and wages and reject corporate greed. But he didn't want to stifle a recovery that had only just started to get going. And instead of tightening, he cut taxes. It is a myth that we must choose endlessly between inflation and recession. Inflation is our friend. Americans weren't convinced, and the president became a regular target of the hot new late-night comedy show, Saturday Night Live. In the year 2000, if current trends continue, the average blue-collar annual wage in this country will be $568,000. Think what this inflated world of the future will mean. Everybody will be a millionaire. Then something happened that dragged inflation back to the top of the presidential to-do list. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you about a problem that's unprecedented in our history. The 1979 revolution in Iran had sent oil markets into a tailspin. The price of a barrel of crude more than doubled. With the exception of preventing war, this is the greatest challenge that our country will face during our lifetime. With memories of 1973 fresh in their minds, motorists panicked and raced to the pump. I've been here since 4.30 this morning. It's ridiculous waiting online here. I couldn't get gas. The line was about eight blocks long. I spend every day three hours on the line. I am always nervous about gas. I can't concentrate on my work. The gas lines were back. The dull cues would follow as growth slowed and inflation surged back into double digits. Carter had to act. He slashed red tape to boost domestic oil production. He cut spending and begged people to drive less and in less powerful cars. But for immediate impact, there was only one option. Paul Volcker was a full foot taller than the president. When Carter offered him the chairmanship of the Federal Reserve, Volcker stretched to full length on an Oval Office sofa and, waving a cigar, warned he would need absolute freedom to do as he thought best and that the remedy would hurt. Carter replied, I need to get somebody in here who'll take care of the economy. Let me take care of the politics. They were fateful words. Volcker raised interest rates to a record 20%. As Carter knew it would, the shock treatment plunged the country back into recession just as he was running for re-election. And in the final round, his opponent, Ronald Reagan, was pulling no punches. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. And recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. Carter lost, bruisingly. But like Rocky, his defeat masked a different kind of victory. His austerity ultimately worked. Volcker's shock therapy caused huge suffering, but backed by Reagan, finally brought inflation under control. And Carter's deregulation would help unleash massive domestic oil production and a jobs boom. Back in 1976, the first senator to endorse the obscure candidate from Georgia was none other than Joe Biden. Today, the comparisons between President Biden and President Carter are becoming ubiquitous. 
But in some ways, that's a bit unfair. On Carter. Idris, at the beginning of Joe Biden's presidency, there were some rather overexcited comparisons to LBJ and FDR. Now the comparison that comes to mind is this one to Carter. How fair do you think it is to both parties? Well, I think that Democrats have for a long time, maybe as a legacy of Carter, had the reputation of not being very good economic stewards. And Republicans, I think, have been able to get away with being the party of fiscal responsibility, even though their terms in office have uh, often coincided with with great increases in deficits and, and debt. Um, so just like with inflation as a whole, narratives matter on this question. And Biden is currently not looking very good. Um, however much the administration pleads, that is not his fault. And I think that they have good evidence for doing so. Voters are still highly concerned about inflation. A lot of them say that it's their top issue heading into the midterms. And that is just uh, not going to look good for Biden himself because there's not that much that he can personally do. He sort of has to wait for the Fed to to slow this thing down and we'll have to deal with the consequences just like uh, Jimmy Carter did. You know, I think that people are rightly are trying to find patterns in history, but I think it's important to look at current perceptions of what Biden can do versus the Fed can do. And I I find it to be interesting the degree to which Americans have kind of fundamental confusion about who is in charge of the economy or who would be able to fix it. I was struck by a poll that said 37% of Americans believe the president has, quote, a lot of control over inflation compared with 34% for the Fed. There's broad confusion in polling about what the Fed can and can't do and what it even means to raise interest rates, what the effect is on the economy. And I think that's not that surprising. We can't expect everyone to be following the ins and outs of monetary policy with the enthusiasm that some of us might do at The Economist. But nevertheless, I think it does feed into this broader challenge for the Biden administration, which is that there's a desire to try to blame the current economic environment on one person or one set of actions and you want to hold someone accountable. But it's a chain of accountability, or if it's a, it's a chain of uh, causation that's not direct. Idris, I think we'll get on to Joe Biden's prospects, but you could imagine him taking a Carter-like turn in his presidency, saying, OK, my approval ratings are pretty bad. I'm just going to do all the kind of correct, unpopular things I can and hope that you know, by taking the pain myself, my successor maybe that's somebody else in the Democratic Party, is better placed in a couple of years' time. That's a noble sentiment, but if the person on the other side of that calculation is Donald Trump, then perhaps it's not, uh, it's not quite as noble as it seems at first glance. Yes, that's right. That is the shadow that hangs over every discussion at the moment of what's going on in the economy and how it's likely to affect American politics. We'll be back in a moment to look at the political consequences beyond the midterms and ask whether President Biden has a way out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Charlotte, it's pretty remarkable how quickly we've moved from a world where some people, including The Economist, were worried about inflation risks to a world where the concern now is about a really significant downturn and perhaps a recession in the U.S. economy. Yes, the talk of a serious downturn has become pervasive. And so I wanted to talk with our U.S. economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, about how that larger shift has happened, how that pessimism has continued to grow. I think the idea that you could get an aggressive monetary tightening without a serious economic slowdown was always um, over-optimistic. The fact that you've got this, you know, this incredibly tight labor market right now, I think, reflects some serious labor market inefficiencies uh, coming out of the, the pandemic, mismatches between where workers live, where companies actually want to hire them, the kinds of sectors they want to hire workers into, the kinds of work that people want to do. You know, America is basically going through uh, the steepest episode of monetary tightening since 1981, uh, when Paul Volcker was, was chairman of the Federal Reserve. So the president strongly suggests that that level of tightening you know, will be a big weight on the economy and very likely will tip it into a recession. Given how aggressively the Fed is moving then, can you talk about the role of the presidency here? So what are the range of ideas that are being put forth as steps that the administration might take now? And what do you think are the chances that they might actually come to pass? To give Biden credit where credit is due, just to start with a counterfactual of, you know, imagine Trump was still in the White House and remember how furious he got when the Fed did a little bit of tightening in his term in office. So credit where credit is due, Biden at least is giving the Fed lots and lots of space. He's strongly restored that norm. But as you say, I mean, there's a whole range of ideas that have come out from both the left and the right. So from the left, we've seen people like Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, propose anti-price gouging legislation, uh, you know, vowing to crack down on corporate greed, that companies should be prevented from raising the price of goods when when price rises are unconscionably excessive, uh, in the words of her proposal. Um, from the right, the basic idea is that the federal government should stop spending so much. So uh, proposals to cut back on entitlement programs, uh, you know, even a proposal from Senator Rick Scott to raise income taxes on, on low-income Americans, uh, which was not a, a very well-received idea. So th- those are ideas that uh, I don't think uh, should be taken overly seriously. They they uh, would change the structure of the American economy, but they wouldn't do all that much um, to help with inflation today. In fact, they might actually make for worse dynamics. Are they likely to come about? Is there broad support for any of them? I don't think those those kinds of extreme ideas do actually have broad support. Uh, I mean, clearly the Biden administration has an agenda to try to do more manufacturing at home in America to invest in that. But it's a slow-moving piece of the agenda. It's not going to move the dial. There are some better ideas. So I think one good idea that would have a short-term impact uh, would be to try to cut medical costs in America. Obviously, as a share of GDP, America spends more on on medical care than virtually any other developed economy. And there's things the government could do, you know, for example, to negotiate lower prescription drug pricing um, that would actually have an upfront impact on inflation. Legislatively, it'll be hard to do that. One thing that we might 
see, you know, in the next few days, in fact, is that Biden will actually uh, reduce some of the tariffs on China. Um, but of course, the politics are, are, are very challenging for Biden. He doesn't want to appear soft on China. So you might see tariffs cut on Chinese imports worth just about $10 billion, which is about kind of one fortieth of America's imports uh, from China. So it's it's not going to be enough to have a substantial impact on inflation. Things like investing more in childcare, you know, doing more to uh, to fight uh, antitrust cases against American companies to make the economy more dynamic. These are things that would help in the longer term. Uh, but you know, in the short term, ultimately, it really is going to come down to the central bank. So so Biden can't can't do all that much. So if a recession were to come. Given the strength of the real economy and the financial system more broadly, do you think it would be relatively mild? Well, it's certainly the hope that it would be relatively mild because, you know, if you look at the fundamentals of the American economy um, compared, for example, to the, the Great Recession in 2008, the housing market is in much better shape. Lending standards have been a lot more prudential. Um, households have have a much bigger buffer of savings and so what we could be looking at then is is kind of a bog standard recession which we haven't experienced in America for for a couple of decades in the sense that the recession isn't caused by a financial crisis like in 2008 it's not caused by a health crisis like in 2020 instead the main cause of it is monetary tightening by the federal reserve which means that you know when the federal reserve basically begins easing you can see growth bottoming out and even rebounding. So that's the hope. So what's the time frame for that? I'm thinking about the political implications in particular, because of course we have the election in November and then gearing up for 2024. And the economy has been such a huge issue for Biden. The time frame is funny in a way in that if you look at the latest run of data, there are quite high odds that the recession is coming and coming potentially sooner than, than forecasters have been talking about. That might not be a horrible thing for Biden. So it would clearly be a bad thing for the Democrats' chances going into the midterms in November. Looking further out, you would think that the sooner you get the recession over with, the better things are for the 2024 presidential cycle. So you begin to get a recovery in in, in late 2023 feeding into 2024 that might be the best economic outcome as, as far as Democrats are concerned. So, Charlotte, my base case is that America either goes into recession or comes close, and it feels like a recession even if it technically isn't one. But one thing that matters a lot for politics is how long such a downturn would last and also how quickly the economy would bounce back. Because obviously a 2024 presidential election run against a backdrop of a depressed American economy, an economy in recession or or recovering slowly, is a very bad prospect for whoever's running for the Democratic Party. Yeah, so I think it's first worth just pointing out what a recession is and isn't. There's popular perception of a recession, which might be a contraction GDP over two quarters. There's the National Bureau of Economic Research, which will declare a recession at a certain point. But Broadly, as Idris has spoken about, consumer sentiment is very, very poor. And we've seen in the past that a recession that comes near a presidential election has almost always led to the incumbent party being ousted. So I think the the timing is really not ideal for Democrats. But 
Also, I'd say that there's a degree to which, again, going back to our earlier conversation about expectations, the economy surely will affect political outcomes, but politics affects the economy. Political advertising even affects the economy. So Goldman Sachs was warning about the effect of ads about inflation that Republicans are likely to put out in the next few months, that those will increase inflation expectations, that those will reinforce the broader expectations in the economy, which then may, again, make it harder for the Fed to keep inflation in check. So the way that these things interact is fascinating and scary, I think, for any Democrat who's trying to mitigate the fallout. Yeah, that's right. Idris, given that midterms are rough on the party that holds the White House, and given that the economy is unlikely to be in great shape in the fall, and given Joe Biden's absolutely terrible approval ratings, you know, my assumption is that Democrats lose both the House and the Senate in the fall. Do you think my level of certainty on that is too high? Do you think there's a chance that that's not the case and they perhaps hang on to one chamber of Congress, probably the Senate? Yeah, it's it, it's looking very likely the Democrats will lose the House. Um, there is still um, perhaps a 50-50 chance that they retain control of the Senate, but that's not necessarily because that the, they're going to uh, pull a rabbit out of the hat on the economy, but because the 2022 Senate map is actually a really good one for Democrats. You know, because only a third of the seats are up every cycle, in some years it's a good one for Democrats based on the states that are up, in some years it's bad. In this case, it's a very good one, so they might just about hold it. But there's a a reasonable chance that they won't. That being said, it's very difficult for Democrats to message effectively on what they're doing on inflation. So there are measures that the president can take, but, you know, he's not able to pass legislation that easily So he has to do things like sign executive orders about increasing competition in the market. He has to uh, uh, make a lot out of the release of of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is relatively small compared to how much Americans actually consume. You know, Democrats might try to message about corporate greed. All of these things, I think, one, don't affect the fundamentals of what's driving inflation all that much. But two at least as far as I can tell, aren't that convincing in terms of getting Americans to think that Democrats are actually capable of doing very much on this issue. So I think that it's it's a tough bind for them to, to be in. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's worth looking over the next few months to the midterms and then also in the few years before the presidential election with some concern for a few reasons. So even if you have a mild recession, that's still conveys a lot of people losing their jobs. If the unemployment rate rises by about two percentage points, about three million Americans would lose their jobs. That has an impact, of course, on those Americans and also on the political landscape. The impact of inflation is really felt most by lower income voters who are among those who were most important for President Biden to win, the the lower income white voters. And then you have a chain reaction, right, which is that If Republicans gain control of Congress, they have even less incentive to work with President Biden to try to mitigate the effects of a downturn. The Fed is not going to be likely to embark on a program of quantitative easing to support the economy, given that it's just worked so hard to try to tame inflation. And then you have this kind of continued dysfunctional political system that instead of having support for some of the things that would position America for longer-term economic growth, like investment in infrastructure, investment in education, a transition for climate, you have 
a gridlocked political system, as well as to the extent that any policies are popular, they seem to be protectionist ones or scapegoating of certain companies that don't set America up for long-term economic vitality. And so I look at how all these things play together, and I think the impact potentially is, is really not a great one. I say all of that as a way of a note of caution, because the recession itself may come earlier, it may be mild, but the broader impacts could be quite extensive. Yes, all I'd add to that is looking at other countries around the world, the forecast for the US economy, although not great, looks quite a lot stronger than many other rich world countries. So it's worth keeping that in mind as we as we worry a lot about what the next few months are going to look like. Okay, before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. And Idris, I hope you're not going to sit on the fence like you did when I asked you to forecast what was going to happen to the US economy over the next six months. Okay, under Ronald Reagan, cuts and attempts to reduce government spending took centre stage. Just months into his presidency, The Economist reported on how politically difficult it was for local politicians to implement these policies. The states are now having to grapple with Reaganomics, cutting programs here, raising taxes there, we wrote. Question one. As part of Reagan's attempt to slash $1.5 billion from school lunch programs, requirements were reworded to categorise which food item as a vegetable. Pizza. Pizza. I think you can each have half a point for pizza as there was a controversy about 10 years ago over whether you could classify pizza as a vegetable if it had a few scoops of tomato paste on it. But the 80s answer is ketchup. The official regulations actually only mentioned pickle relish but provoked such outrage that the administration had to withdraw what had become known as the ketchup rule. You can get a bonus point for guessing which food item Reagan's temporary emergency food assistance program gave away 30 million pounds of. I'm going to go with spam. Ugh, gross. That's probably right. Or canned tuna. Um, It it was neither, but as this is the bonus question, you, you guys are still both in credit. As part of the school lunch reforms, the Reagan administration also gave away almost 30 million pounds or 13 million kilos of excess cheese. Great. Question two. Ketchup has a long history in America, but for a period during the early 19th century, ketchup wasn't just a condiment. What else was it used for? Hmm, some medicinal purpose? Looks like uh, construction of some kind. <laughs> Charlotte is correct. It was used as a medicine. Apparently, John Bennett, a physician from Ohio, began selling ketchup as a medicine that could cure ailments like diarrhea, indigestion, and jaundice. <laughs> The ketchup medicine market eventually collapsed in the 1850s, some 20 years before Mr. Hines got into the business. Yeah, this is this is mostly unrelated, but they used to um, they used to sell heroin and market it as a cure for alcoholism. <laughs> you fix one problem and create another. Yeah, Charlotte, that's a quiz triumph for you. I think maybe your first triumph against Idris, so you can go and do a lap of honor. My appearance on Jeopardy would be entirely confined to packaged food facts. All right. On that note, I'll leave you both alone. Thank you both for being here. Bye. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan with additional production by Lola Afulabi and mixed by Saul Rivers. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other listeners find the podcast. I noticed the other day we had one and a half thousand reviews on Apple Podcasts and not quite as many on Spotify. If we can get those numbers up, 
a bit, then I will implore Charlotte to do a TikTok dance explaining inflation expectations, and we will tweet it out. So please do go and leave us a, a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive on our shiny new homepage at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.